Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. I'm standing in Cuba, or more accurately, Cuban territory. No, I'm not in Havana or anywhere near the island nation. I'm in Ybor City, at the corner of 8th Avenue and 13th Street to be exact. The air here is redolent with the morning smell of Café Con Leche wafting over from the restaurants on nearby La Setima, 7th Avenue. Roosters strut without a worry nearby, as you can hear. A nearly empty trolley rolls just outside its gates. This is the Parque Amigos de Jose Marti, the Friends of Jose Marti Park. Soil from each of Cuba's provinces is buried here. Lording over it all above me is a statue of Jose Marti, the father of Cuban independence. His palm is outstretched upwards, a gesture of friendship flanked by the flags of Cuba and Florida. Parti's fiery speeches, including a major address delivered in 1893 on the steps of an Ybor cigar factory, earned him the title Apostle of Cuban Freedom. The park has been legally owned by Cuba since 1956, three years before the Cuban Revolution. The park was donated to Cuba by Paulina Pedroso, an Afro-Cuban who was a prominent leader of the Cuban Revolution. It's located at the site of Pedroso's boarding house, where Marti stayed during his visits to Tampa. It's where Pedroso helped Marti recover from an assassination attempt in 1892. Years later, management of the park was given to an anti-Cuban activist group called the Cuban Historical and Cultural Center. They still maintain the grounds. For nearly six decades, this was the only piece of Cuban-owned land in the United States until the Cuban embassy opened in Washington, D.C. in 2015. The history of Cuba and Tampa is intertwined going back decades before the Cuban Revolution and the Spanish-American War that liberated it in 1898. It's one of the subjects of Cuban Pathways, now on exhibit at the Tampa Bay History Center. Curator Brad Massey traveled to South Florida and Key West over the past year to find artifacts for display. We'll now take a walk with Massey to get a closer look at the island's 500-year history and how prominently Tampa and Florida have played a role. All right, Brad, we're walking through the display here. Tell me how it begins. So the way this exhibit began was we wanted to tell a long 500-year story of Cuban history. So whereas there's been some exhibits um, about specific instances in Cuban history, like Operation Pedro Pan, which was this movement of children during the early revolutionary period, we hadn't seen a show that had told a longer story of Cuban history. So we said, why don't we do this in our gallery space? We'll tell a 500-year story about Cuba and the diverse groups of people that called it home. All right, so let's start at the beginning here, uh, defining Cuba, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, so one thing we always have to do is treat our guests like they don't know anything. So we tell them that obviously Cuba is an island and that it's right in the middle of the Caribbean. And so we use some maps from our collection because we have a very robust map collection. We literally have thousands of maps. And one of the first maps that we show people is a map that positions Cuba in the modern Atlantic world. But really importantly, it shows how mountainous Cuba is because the 
mountains are really important in Cuban history. A lot of people know that Castro will go and he'll create a base camp in the mountains. But hundreds of years before that, people that escaped enslavement, they created new communities in the mountains. Um, Taino Indians, which were these Cuban Indians that came over thousands of years ago, they created communities in the mountains. So whereas you know Florida's flatness is a defining part of its topography and its history, Cuba's mountains are a defining part of its history. So right at the beginning of the exhibit here, we tell them Cuba's mountainous, it's in the Caribbean, and its geography and its topography really defines and um, will really dictate its historical fate. Then another thing we want to do here is we wanted an exhibit that talked about the diverse group of people that come to Cuba over the last 500 years. And so there's three separate pathways in the exhibit. The first one is an Afro-Cuban pathway, because we have so many people of African descent that come to Cuba. Not of their own volition, of course. Correct. A lot of, um, almost all of the African people that are brought to Cuba in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and beyond are enslaved. But they're also one of the primary groups of people that come, and that's why their story is so important. You know, Africans in a lot of ways make modern Cuba, and they make the modern Atlantic world. Another story that we tell is the Chinese story in Cuba, and that's a story that a lot of people don't know about. What happens is, particularly near the end of the African slave trade, there's going to be a lot of Cuban farm owners that are going to need labor, and they're going to recruit Chinese workers to come. And so what we see in the 1800s is we see a large influx of Chinese men that come to Cuba in the 1800s. And so one of our pathways is a Chinese-Cuban pathway through the exhibit. And then lastly is we want to tell a Spanish story, because there's obviously a lot of Spaniards that come to Cuba um, from the 1500s to the 1900s. And so we tell the story of a Spanish family that comes to Cuba, they create a very successful manufacturing business, but ultimately after Castro's revolution, they're going to leave Cuba. So that's our third and final pathway through the show. So it looks like we start off with the, uh, the Spanish discovery in 1490s. Yeah, so we, we want to start off with two things. We wanted to start with the Spanish, but also Taino Indians, and really their interchange, because we have Tainos that come thousands of years before the Spanish, and then when the Spanish come, they're going to change life ways in Cuba. So one thing we do is we introduce the Tainos and then the Spanish, and when we were curating the exhibit, we thought to ourselves, well, what are good objects? Because at the end of the day, that's what we do, right? We deal in objects in material culture. So what are good objects? to tell the Spanish story. And we decided, well, shipwreck objects are gonna be really nice because for the Spanish, this is a colonial outpost that's obviously in the middle of the Atlantic world. And so we partnered with the Mel Fisher Museum down in Key West, and they were very gracious. They allowed us to borrow some split shots, some barb shot, which of course were used in Spanish cannons. Um, we also had coins from our collection that went down in a Spanish shipwreck. So some of the first objects you see when you come to the show is you'll see these objects that were salvaged from Spanish shipwrecks in the 1600s. And then one thing we like to nerd out about here at the History Center are maps. We have this huge map collection. One of the most important maps in our collection is the 1511 Peter Martyr map. And the reason this map is so important is it's likely the very first, or at least one of the first maps to actually identify the island as Cuba. And what we see in the Martyr map is you see a very defined Cuba, and just north of it, you see a very undefined Florida. And one thing we do in this 
exhibit is we talk about this long tie between Cuba and Florida and the 1511 martyr map is one of the first artifacts where we can literally visually display that that long-running connection between Cuba and Florida. Is this one of the first mapped displays of Florida? I know for a long time it was just kind of terra incognita way up there to the north, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what you see in this map is Florida kind of sticking out and you see the keys that are kind of bending over towards Cuba, but Florida doesn't look like a peninsula, just looks like kind of a little blob, but you're starting to see that Spanish map makers are getting an understanding that there's a landmass there, but they're not quite sure what it looks like. So we talk about Taino Indian people, we talk about the interchange with the Spaniards, and then a lot of the early portion of the gallery is dedicated to tell the story of Afro-Cubans. And Afro-Cubans are just so incredibly important when it comes to laboring on in Cuba, creating new cultural products like new musical styles, and then also becoming really a backbone of the large Cuban community and the revolutionary community going forward. So a couple objects that we use to tell the Afro-Cuban story are slave receipts, which for us are very powerful objects, right? For example, we have one document that has an insurance policy on a man named Jose. So we're able to give Jose a name, a person that was enslaved just outside of Havana. Enslaved people, of course, are commodified, right? That's the brutality of the slave system. And because they're commodified, they become the most valuable property in Cuba. So you would see owners take insurance policies out on enslaved people. So documents like these we use to tell that story. When it came to talking about the black experience in Cuba, we thought one interesting way to do that is going to be through art. So the Daytona Museum of Arts and Sciences allowed us to borrow a few pieces. Some of those pieces are three lithographs that depict life and labor on Cuban sugar plantations um, in the mid-1840s. And these are really interesting pieces because it's one of the few artifacts we can show that shows the daily lives of enslaved people. We see them working in the fields in one of the lithographs. We see them bathing in one of the others. Um, so it speaks to their experience. And then another piece that the Daytona Museum of Arts and Sciences loaned us was this portrait of the treasurer of Havana. And the interesting thing about this picture for me is not that the treasurer of Havana was so interesting, but the artist was interesting. His name was Vicente Escobar, and um, he was a black portraiture artist in Cuba. And his story is so interesting because he's so successful, he ultimately moves to Madrid and he becomes the painter of the royal chamber. And we use this piece to tell the story of the large free black population in Cuba. And a lot of us here in the United States might not realize, but Cuba has a very large free population, much larger than the United States before the end of slavery. Upwards of 20% of black Cubans are free. And so this portrait that Vicente Escobar painted allows us to tell that story and about how um, a lot of free black Cubans obviously had opportunities. They were still socially constricted, but they had opportunities that enslaved people didn't have. So the portrait's an interesting piece for us to tell that story. We're taking a walking tour through the Tampa Bay History Center. We'll be right back with more on their new exhibit on the history of Cuba right after this short break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. We're taking a walking tour of Cuban pathways now on exhibit at the Tampa Bay History Center. Let's rejoin our tour with curator Brad Massey. 
onto the revolution. This is, the, this is some of the interesting stuff here. The Cuban Revolution, as we know, took a lifespan of many decades, right? It, it didn't just start in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. Yeah, absolutely. The Cuban Revolution happens in this age of revolutions, right? It starts with the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and then, of course, there's revolutions in the Spanish Empire. Um, Cuba, though, is going to be something that the Spanish Empire is going to hold on to for a long time. It's still profitable. They still see it as giving them a foothold in the Atlantic world, and so they're going to fight for Cuba, Puerto Rico, and then in the Pacific, in the Philippines, until the late 1800s or 1900s. Brad, if we could, let's talk about the role that uh, Tampa in particular played in the Cuban Revolution. I started out this program with a visit to Jose Marti Park in Ybor City, which is the property of the Cuban government, and that was originally the property of Paulina Pedroso, who was a uh, Afro-Cuban woman, very prominent in the revolution. Don't really hear much about her these days. Um, there's also, right nearby, there is a society called the Marti Maceo Society, an Afro-Cuban society named after uh, Jose Marti, the father of Cuban independence, and Antonio Macedo, who uh, was a general prominent in that. Tell me about the connection between Tampa and Cuba in the years leading up to the revolution. Yeah, the connection between Tampa and Cuba was really summed up by a Spanish general that said Tampa is really the heart of the American conspiracy. And what he meant by that is a lot of people that came to Tampa, especially cigar workers, um, women like Paulina Pedroso, they're going to be not only supporters but funders of the revolutionary cause. And Marti is going to come to Tampa continuously. He's going to give speeches. He's going to fundraise. And local people in the community are really going to support these efforts, including Paulina Pedroso. And so these connections stretch really far back, and we wanted something in our show that would really tell the story. So one cool piece we have is a Cuban revolutionary bond for $2. And this is an interesting piece in the collection because it's a donation to the fight for Cuban independence before the United States is involved in the war and is really interested in Cuba at all. And so it speaks to these long-running ties between Cuba and Tampa. So Brad, as we know, um, the role of Cubans in Tampa in particular predates the revolution by a really long time. So with the establishment of cigar factories, I believe first in Key West and then they came here. How did that happen? How did Tampa become this hotbed of cigar manufacturing so far away from where most of the tobacco was actually grown? Yeah, Tampa really becomes the center for cigar production for a few reasons. The first is you have this political upheaval in Cuba in the mid-1800s. You know, you have these, these revolutionary fighters and it creates instability. And so one thing that Cuban cigar makers want to do is they want to come over to the United States to perhaps get away from some of this, but also to sell into the American market. That's another really important part. And so what we see is we see early cigar factories in Key West, which actually has very close proximity to Cuba, but then with the railroads extending into Florida, and in Tampa in particular, we have people like Aya, people like Vicente Ibor that say, well, we should create a cigar factory here in Tampa, and then Tampa Boosters really encourage that. Um, they give 
Ebor and other cigar manufacturers tax incentives to come over, and then Ebor and other cigar manufacturers will give cigar workers incentives to come over. They'll build structures for them, they'll say, well, you can payroll deduct your mortgage payment, and then you see thousands and thousands of cigar workers that start to come to Tampa. And they're a very diverse bunch. Um, there's a lot of Spaniards, there's a lot of Cubans, there's a lot of Afro-Cubans, and they're going to come and they're going to work in different facets of the cigar manufacturing process. So how do these people become radicalized? Usually you think of cigar workers, you know, they're sitting there with the lector uh, reading to them the news of the day. Was that maybe a source of their radicalization, hearing the news of what was happening in their you know, where they came from, their homeland? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, for cigar factory owners, they said, absolutely, the lectors are a problem. These people that stand on these large chairs and they read to the workers, you know, they're the reason that Cubans are radicalized. But part of the story, too, is the cigar workers that are leaving Cuba and coming to Tampa are leaving a country that's fighting for its independence, right? And when a country fights for its independence, there's always a lot of radical ideas that are in the air. Um, some of them are more mainstream, but some of them relate to Spanish anarchism and you know some of these more radical trends in Europe. So I would argue that it's not the lectors that necessarily radicalize the cigar workers, but it's really this revolutionary mixture, right? This mixing of ideas, of political ideas, that really lead a lot of cigar workers to support the revolution, support the fight for Cuban independence, and some of these other really radical ideas in the 1800s. And how many of these, these clubs, these revolutionary clubs, were established here? There's about 76 um, pro-revolutionary clubs in Florida, and 41 of them are in the Tampa area. That's a lot back then. That's a lot back then, and the clubs take different forms. Um, for example, kind of the antecedents of the Marti Maceo Club, which is going to be a, a social club specifically for Afro-Cubans that's going to be formed, and we talk about Marti Maceo in the exhibit. Um, they're going to be involved in early revolutionary and fundraising movements, and then ultimately they will become a segregated club because of Jim Crow here in the United States. And then, you know, from Florida to Cuba, you have weapons transports. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward is going to have a ship, the Three Friends, that is going to be used to send weapons to Cuba. Um, so you have all these ties, which are the reason that one Spanish general says, well, Tampa's the heart of the American conspiracy. It's a real problem in his mind. A lot of the money for the revolutionary cause came from here, then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing about cigar workers is they are very well well paid comparatively. A lot of them are making enough money in Tampa that they're able to buy, for example, a $2 revolutionary war bond that we have on display here and fund the revolution. And it's one of the reasons Marti comes here so often, right? He's like, well, I'm going to go to Tampa. I'm going to fundraise. He goes to other places, of course, like New York City. But Tampa, he realizes heading up to what's going to be the outbreak of war again in the mid-1890s that this is a place where we can raise a lot of money and there's a lot of people that are politically sympathetic to the fight for Cuban independence. A lot of people who were not sympathetic. He had a, an attempt on his life. Was that here in Tampa that happened? Yeah, so there was an attempt on Marti's life here in Tampa. A Spanish agent tried to assassinate him. And then the story is, this is one of the reasons why Paulina was such an important, Paulina Pedrosa was such an important person in Marti's life. The story is that Paulina and her husband become Marti's protector, right? They bring him back to their place. They basically try to, you know, get him healthy. And then when he visits Tampa in the future, he's going to stay with them. So they become an important part of the story. And part of the story of how dangerous Spanish officials thought Jose Marti actually was, politically speaking.
So that clicking we hear is a giant Viewmaster. Now these were those old-fashioned stereoscopic eyepieces, for lack of a better word, that gave you a, like kind of a stereo view, like you were looking at a postcard, but it was in 3D. And this is emblematic of the role tourism played, um, especially after World War II, right? In the 50s, that was kind of the heyday of tourism? Yeah, absolutely. The 1950s, you have millions of Americans that are going to Cuba. But even before that, in the 1920s, when airlines you know, are connecting Key West and Cuba, and then ultimately Tampa and Cuba, we start to see a lot of tourists go to Cuba. And Cuba is a place that offers a lot. It offers you know, beaches, it offers blue water, but for a lot of Americans, it also offers gambling, it offers um, houses of ill repute, and these other types of things. So Cuba had a lot of different aspects that really drew a lot of tourists in. We know about the role of, of Tampa and Florida in the Cuban Revolution. What was the role of people in Tampa and Florida in the communist revolution. Yeah, it was a little bit different than what's going down in Miami. And what we see in Miami is there's a lot of people that are loyal to Batista, they're loyal to the old, old regime, they're gonna create a stronghold in Miami. In Tampa, it's a little bit different because you have these long ties and you have these people that came over in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a pocket of Tampa is going to be a little bit more sympathetic to the early years of the revolution. And so you see some pro-revolutionary clubs here in Tampa. Um, you see attempts to really support what's going on in Cuba. But then that starts to change a lot, especially by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, a lot of those groups that were kind of cautiously optimistic about what Cuba could become under the Castro regime, they're going to be disavowed of a lot of those things. But there is a difference between what's going on in Tampa and what's going on in Miami and other places where you see a lot of a lot of anti-Castroism. And about that time is when the kind of the center of the, the, the Cuban world in Florida shifted from Tampa to South Florida to Miami with the refugee crisis in the early 1960s. And that's really where we stand today, right? Uh, Tampa is really kind of thought of as a uh, younger brother for lack of a better term, to Miami as far as the Cuban experience? Yeah, absolutely. You know, another way to put it is Tampa has a longer tie um, when it comes to thousands and thousands of Cubans coming to Tampa. And so a lot of people don't think much about Tampa. They just think about Miami. They think about people getting on chug boats and balsas and desperately trying to cross the straits. And of course, Dade County now has the largest number of Cubans. Um, that have migrated since 1959. So yeah, there's kind of a different story and really a different history when it comes to Tampa's ties to Cuba and the ties in the, of the Miami area to Cuba and particularly Castro's revolution. Which brings us to this interesting vessel that's been cut in half here. This was a, uh, a boat, for lack of a better term, <laughs> that, uh, that made it from Cuba to uh, right at the, the southernmost buoy in Key West. Tell me about the history of this thing. Yeah, we have what's known as a chug boat in the collection, or I should say in the gallery on display for this show. And the reason we did that is we tell the story of a lot of people that fly out in the 1960s and um, during the Freedom Flight era. But we really wanted to close the show talking about the people that have taken to the sea, right, and try to cross the Florida Straits. And we were able to acquire a recent chug boat that crossed in September of 2021. And the boat's really interesting because it's 
it's a typical chug in that it has a Russian-made diesel engine that was repurposed to um, motor the boat. And that's why they call it a chug, because it sounds like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. The term chug came from the chug, chug, chug sound that the diesel engines would make. And, you know, it's it's a makeshift craft, but I use that, that term very carefully because it's heavily engineered. Whoever built this thing knew what they were doing, and they knew what they were doing to the point that 12 people got on this vessel. They left from a part of Cuba that we're not sure where it was, but they made it to the southernmost buoy in Key West in September of 2021. And the reason we have this vessel on display is not because it's so unique, but it's so common, right? And it's a piece of material culture that really speaks to the shared experience of thousands of thousands of Cubans desperately and very dangerously taking to the sea since 1959. Do we know the fate of the uh, the 12 people once they got in Key West? Were they allowed to stay in the country? No, unfortunately, I'm not sure. I know they were apprehended because there was a story in the local papers down in the Keys. Um, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the federal government to figure out what happened to the 12 people, but that um, Freedom of Information Act request was denied. So I'm not sure what happened to these 12 people. All I know is that they were taken into Border Patrol custody, and then that's all I know. So Brad, you went down to Key West, you went down to South Florida to gather these artifacts. Where did you find this boat? How difficult was that? It was difficult. Um, finding the vessel was the most difficult thing or the most difficult object to add to the exhibit. But for me, it was incredibly important. And what I did was I stayed on the news feeds because there has been a lot of crossing really since COVID. COVID's taken a large toll on the Cuban economy. And I followed up with waste management, the Coast Guard, the Border Patrol, the Sheriff's Office, all these different entities. And then fortunately, um, I was able to find a vessel that 12 people successfully used to cross um, that was picked up by a local salvage company. And they very graciously agreed to hold on it, hold on to it for me. I flew down to Key West literally the next day, put it in a U-Haul, colleague of mine put it in a U-Haul, and we drove it back here. So it was very difficult to find this vessel, but we think for what we were trying to do in this exhibit, it was absolutely necessary, and it's the centerpiece of the exhibit. It was going to be scrapped, right? It was just going to become scrap metal. Yeah, usually what happens to these things is there's this back and forth between whose responsibility it is, the sheriff's office, the border patrol, the coast guard. But normally what happens is if they land, they will be scrapped by a local company, and then ultimately they end up in the landfill. A lot of them are going to be hauled away. So surprisingly, it can be very difficult to get these vessels, especially now, nowadays when um, crossing has changed. Brett, I'd like to ask you about your emotions when you were down there researching this, finding you a physical specimen, a physical manifestation of this story. And what are the, the reaction of some of the people, especially Cuban immigrants who come in here and see this? There's been a couple pieces that have really been emotionally powerful. One of the pieces is the airline seats. We have airline seats from the era of freedom flights. And I had a, a, a Cuban that came in here and he was talking to me about the show. He's like, when I saw those seats, I thought about myself sitting in the airport in 1960s, you know, ready to leave Havana. And then when it came to the boat, it's such an emotional piece. And I had one visitor come in and he looked at this vessel and he goes, it's the smell. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, the smell. He goes, I can smell it. He's like, I don't want to pretend that I know what it was like to obviously get in this boat and cross the straits, but just the smell and the feeling that it, that it evokes. And so I think that that really spoke to, you know, how important this vessel was and how important it was to give us different 
or for us to show different objects that tell these different stories. And so the vessel's been particularly powerful, but I'll say this, you never know what piece, and that's why we have over 100 objects in the show, you never know what piece is really gonna elicit an emotional response, especially from someone that came over from Cuba. Brad Massey is curator of the Cuban Pathways exhibit, and that is at the Tampa Bay History Center through? It's gonna run for a full year, so it's gonna be here until next February. So come on down and check it out. All right, Brad, thank you so much for being on Florida Matters. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Brad Massey and the staff of the Tampa Bay History Center. Our producer is Denora Prevost. I'm Steve Newborn. We're handing over the reins for Florida Matters beginning next week to Matthew Petty, our latest addition to the staff at WUSF. Trust me, you'll hear the difference when this New Zealand native takes over. We'll see you again next week on Florida Matters.